be judgmental or I can give myself grace and be kind. I don't say that I, I do this successfully all the time, but I have a work in progress and I try to have my own back. So that would be my advice to whoever wants this or needs to hear this is you are your true friend first and the world cannot embrace you as you are if you do not embrace yourself as you are. This is the Indianness Podcast, stories of success from leaders and change makers of Indian origin. Why have Indians achieved success across so many different disciplines around the globe? I have no idea, but let's find out together. Every story is unique, and so is today's. I'm very excited to have Sushma Patia with us today. She's the Global Head of Strategy and Operations for Google Payments. She also serves on the California Board of Environmental Safety, besides having a long career in public sector and consulting. But I wanted to have her on our show because I was fascinated how she moved from San Francisco Department of Environment to her own startup, to Accenture, a large consulting firm, now heading up strategy for Google Payments, being in the state environmental board. Either she could not make up her mind or she just has innate curiosity. Welcome, Sushma. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on our podcast. We are all very curious about you. Well, lovely to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation over the next hour. Sushma, as I tell our guests, that this is really about inspiring the next generation or the people even from this generation about the stories and what makes up you who you are. To do that, we have to go from the beginning. So can you walk us to where you were born, a little bit about your childhood and about your upbringing, your parents, etc.? I was born in a tiny town in South India called Vijayawada. I didn't really grow up there, though, because my parents, like many parents of that generation, were interested in building a good life for their young, growing family. So they moved to the big city, Mumbai, and then they moved out of India when I was very young. So as we talk, you will hear more about my global childhood. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. So during childhood, you had, as some people would know in India, you know, there are a lot of different cultures, languages, etc. So you got a good exposure to that. How was that experience, Shushma, going, you know, because Vijayawada to Bombay is a little bit of a different culture. I've not been to Vijayawada, but I would presume it was a little bit different. Yes. I had a very multicultural experience, and that was a good thing for me. Mm -hmm. I lived in a household and growing up, my family spoke Telugu, but I moved to Mumbai and I heard Marathi and Hindi during early childhood. I remember it was my second or third language, I think Marathi was, and then moved eventually to the Middle East. So then I grew up studying English, Hindi, Arabic to some degree, a little bit of French in there, a little bit of Marathi, neither of which I can speak at all at this point. So a lot of different exposure, even the Middle East thrown in. Being able to adapt became a necessity, so to speak, for you. Absolutely. And I think now when I think back to that, there's a lot of learning from being exposed to new and uncomfortable environments and situations. But when I was experiencing those events, they felt like this is how things are. Like, I, of course, I'm supposed to be able to learn Marathi one day and then pick up, go to a different school and have a different second or third language, which might be French or Arabic. And I just have to adapt and I have to adjust to what is in front of me. 
Of course, now we can look back and like try to identify labels and say, oh, was that challenging? Was that difficult? How did I cope? But I think when you're little and you are given those experiences, you there's a sense of going with the flow because you don't know any different. So I think I approached my life as this is the way things are and this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do what's in front of me. So that was your normal, basically. Now, what did your dad do? He was an accountant, a chartered accountant. So he did accounting for a large shipping corporation that had multiple locations globally, but primarily took him to India, of course, and then Singapore, and then Middle East. Wow. So an accountant per se. Any siblings that you have? Yes, I have one older sister. Okay. So two wonderful girls in the house. And what does your older sister do? She is in a leadership role leading a large engineering organization for Salesforce. Wonderful. Right in the beginning, was it considered that you would have a professional kind of a life? Was education an important aspect? Was that talked about, expected? I think in order to truly answer this question, I have to talk to you a little bit about my mother. Please. That will help you understand how critical education was as a theme in my household. My mom, her name is Vidya. And for those of you that speak any Indian language, know that Vidya means education and learning and knowledge. So the one regret my mom has had her probably her entire life is that she didn't really fully get to explore being a student and being a professional. She loved being in school, but the norm back then was to marry early and to go build a household and not pursue an education or a professional life. So she didn't really study beyond her like 12th grade. Because of that, she had this innate drive that her girls would achieve what she was not able to achieve. But without using those words specifically, it was just this, you have an opportunity to study. You have an opportunity to build a professional life. Why would you not do that? Anything around our personal growth, my mother would create all those opportunities, clear all those roadblocks and be available as a pillar to make sure those things were unblocked and so we could, we could solely pursue education. It was never a question or a debate in the household. And that, I think, best describes the environment in which I grew up, this, this fiercely passionate mother who was ready to do whatever it takes so that her daughters could be successful. And I think there's one other anecdote I can give you to fully drive this point home is when we were, you hear about this more, I was telling you that a part of my childhood, I grew up in the Middle East. This was in a country called Kuwait. So those of you that have heard about the country associate Kuwait with the Gulf War. We were there, we were one of the Indian families growing up in Kuwait before the Gulf War. And when the Gulf War happened, and my family was devastated, completely displaced. And we were in that environment when Iraq invaded Kuwait for a almost a month or so. But when it came time to flee the country, when an opportunity came for us to leave the country and take care of ourselves, we had maybe two hours to pack the suitcases in the middle of the night. And my mom would pack it with books. Because in her mind, she was thinking, my girls are going to have to go back to school, maybe in India, maybe somewhere else, but I cannot have this create a break in their education system. So that is my mother. I think that story just captures the essence of what my mom is and what education means to our household. You know, you brought up a very interesting point about the Gulf War and being right in the middle of it. 
How was that? Because this was the first Gulf War. Yes. So this was prior to the Gulf War. There was a long period of invasion. There was basically an invaded country and lack of infrastructure and a chaotic environment for people living in the country. So I'd say this happened during my very early childhood formative years. When I look back, I can clearly say that this was one of the very influencing pivotal moments of my life because I learned so much about what is a war. You don't grow up thinking about what a war is and what it means to be disrupted, what it means to see your parents being helpless or in despair and feeling broke through that set of events. There was a a moment in time when my parents had lost almost everything, what it means to rebuild. So there's so many different experiences wrapped into one. The concept of being a refugee. I don't think I knew what a refugee, what it's like to be a refugee. You flee from a country and you don't have anything. You are essentially a refugee. But I think now when I look back, my parents rebuilt. And when I have any challenges that come up today, any of my first world problems, I can think back to that moment and feel like if we overcame that, anything is possible, right? As long as you have your full being, your health, and you have a set of foundational skills, you can create anything. And there's never a moment of such despair and such hopelessness anymore. We talk about resilience a lot. We've been talking about it during COVID. But for me, the true resilience lesson came from that early lesson. So that was one of the defining moments for you growing up. It must have impacted your parents quite a bit. You could see, potentially see that. And probably you were helpless because you were a child not being able to do anything. Absolutely. But you came out of that somehow. Yes. I'd say, I mean, this is the beauty of childhood, I think, is we don't have in childhood such a strong sense of right or wrong or benchmarks. And so even when the war happened, there was a a moment of, okay, this is happening, but taking things for what they are. My sister and I would count the bombs going off in the distance and be like, oh, like this is my counter, this is yours. And we found a way to create some play around it to as a way to protect ourselves and our little our childhood. The I think the point where it truly became pivotal was watching how my parents were truly in despair, but at one point unable to hide that from the little kids. And then you Realize that all of your, you children, we elevate our parents and put them on a pedestal and, and seeing them in that mode, I think created this true fear and true fear and then just sort of new feelings and emotions to process. But also the beauty of this is I saw them through it because I saw them being human and then I saw them trying to figure out how to get out of it. I think culturally, this is probably true for many cultures. We try to shield our kids so much from the world events to put them in a bubble and give them the best of experiences. But I think there comes some times in our lives when that becomes no longer possible. And I think war is one of those situations. So when all of that like bubble came off and we were able to see there's the raw emotions that my parents were going through, see them come out of it the other end, like that is the, the beauty and the lesson that I think I certainly took away and my sister did too. Is There can be moments of despair when you feel like you've hit rock bottom, but if you can just stick with it, you can dig yourself out of it too. 
where did that resilience come? Just part of your DNA, parents, the environment, your sister, or just or a combination of all of them? I think it's a combination of it. I think resilience is all about, in my mind, it is about just hitting rock bottom and coming out of it. And the more, it's like a muscle. If you've done it once, you can do it again. And it's about reminding yourself that I've done it once, I can get out of this, I can get out of this. That was an early lesson when the war environment happened, watching how others were resilient. Like in my case, my parents were resilient, but I also saw folks that were not resilient and how they coped differently. And then I've had my own life experiences since then that I would call my own personal rock bottom. But every time I'm able to work myself out of it, I know that when it happens again, if it happens again, I'm able to take myself out of it. What I'm gathering is resilience is a muscle memory kind of a thing. That's a very good point. So you came back to India from Kuwait. So tell us then what happened. You went to college from there? I had the most bizarre year when I came back from the war. Mm -hmm. Bizarre because we were displaced and we didn't know where we were going to live. We didn't really have much of the finances for my parents was frozen. So there was a, I'm going to call this the year of nomadic living in some sense where we lived briefly in Mumbai, where my dad was looking to reestablish his life. So I went to school briefly in Mumbai for maybe four to six weeks, and that didn't quite work out. So we decided to move in with my grandparents in southern India. And then I went to another school there for another three or four months. In all of this time, my dad then moves to a different country in the Middle East and gets reestablished. So then I moved there from there to finish my year in the third country, my fourth school. So it was a very bizarre nomadic year. Four different schools across three countries. Wow. Got to be tough making friends with so many moves going on. Just trying to remember which teacher is who, but maybe that's part of your, as you said, your resilience that comes from there. So then what happened? You moved to this third Middle Eastern country. Then when do you come back to India? Because there is that whole IIT path here. Yes, absolutely. So I finished my college, my like up to 12th grade, as you call it, in the Middle East. And I did all the the entrance exams and so on that you do in order to get placed in college. Mm -hmm. And that's how I went to uh, IIT Mumbai is through placement. And I chose chemical engineering as my major. So I spent the next formative phase of my life in Mumbai for four years. Why chemical engineering, Sushma? Is that what your passion is? So first of all, I was doing two things back then. One was I was resisting the whole world telling me that I needed to do computer science. I didn't know enough about any major in particular. I remember having this like resistance, like why do I have to do computer science? Why do I have to do what everybody else had done before me is doing after me? And there was that. There was also my deep love for chemistry. I loved chemistry in my high school. I loved my chemistry professor. And I naively thought that chemistry was the same as chemical engineering and that would help me refine those types of skills. I learned after the fact that it's not in any way related. But however, that was what led me to choose chemical engineering. And it was entirely by choice. I had a choice at that time and I chose chemical engineering. As most people who listen and some who don't, Getting into IIT, sometimes they say, is harder than getting into MIT. The people who don't get into IIT come to MIT or Stanford and others. 
But that must have been a pretty tough and obviously a big accomplishment. And IIT Mumbai is, Pawai is a very, very prestigious institution. So you must have really worked hard. And at that time, there were, I would presume, and I'm, it's not too long ago, but not too many female applicants or things like that. Maybe Now I think the number has increased. So how was that? A tough entrance exam, making it and then going into IIT Mumbai. So I think this was another just big early lesson for me is my experience entering the IIT campus for the first time, going through that orientation process and realizing that I was one of 20 girls in a cohort of 400 boys. And this was the highest ever number of females they had in that year. And it was so scary for me because I had just come off an environment where the Middle East is very segregated or was very segregated then with one sister, highly segregated society where the education system was set up so that girls would attend school in the morning and then boys would go in the afternoon. So I didn't even get to interact with boys as part of my education process. And then I ended up in a world where the ratios are completely reversed and there were so few women. I just remember being very uncomfortable all the time at first, at least the first year. I think the throughout this the time at IIT or even post-war, I would say, the struggle I was experiencing is something I didn't have the vocabulary for then, but I have it now. It's a sense of belonging. Because when you get displaced and you're in a new environment and you're trying to fit in, as you call it, make friends, but you're different. You had a set of different experiences, so you don't show up like everybody else around you. And it takes a lot of empathy, of course, to, for people to recognize that and embrace it. And there's, when you're so little, that difference is not often celebrated. And there's a sense of like, this is person is other, the otherism, and we are all together because we've had similar experiences. So I think that was my core struggle throughout my early years, like from the war through the end of IIT, there was enough of a difference where the language I used was different, or like my upbringing was different, or something was different about me all the time. It's yeah. interesting that now when I, you think that working for 23 years, that I no longer have that, but I actually do. I actually do often think about, do I feel like I belong here? I find that I and or some other women leaders that I've talked with and work with feel this tension of celebrating the difference and also trying to fit in at the same time and doing both of these. And it's like, you can feel like tightrope walking, but I'm calling that out because it's worth acknowledging the moment and saying, okay, this is what I'm doing now. It's like, I want to show that I'm different and I'm unique. So I have a unique perspective to offer. But at the same time, I'm also like you, which is why we can hang out together and go for our social events together. And you can see me in a leadership role too, even though I look different from all the other people on your leadership team. That's pretty tough. So it must have been a little lonely out in IIT. Firstly, obviously, you were put in in a pretty tough environment where everybody is so equally smart and you're adjusting to this whole thing. But you survived using your resilience muscle somehow. And then what happened after you graduated from IIT? Before we get to the graduation part, and there's one yes. other thing I want to say about mm -hmm. those early years in IIT. 
We spoke about the gender imbalance, inequity. We spoke about the sense of not belonging quite. And of course, when you overlay that with all of the highly competitive environment, it can be very stressful. I want to call this out because while I was in IIT, there was a close, very close friend of mine that attempted suicide. And I sort of experienced it with her. She recovered ultimately, but she was hospitalized and we were in it together. I want to bring that up because we now have a mental health crisis and the world is different and it's complex and it can feel, just can feel really gnarly to navigate. I find that in those moments, anchoring on those few relationships that you have that can remind you of your contribution to the world and remind you that you also belong, even if you're different, can just change your own life, but also change someone else's life. And we can also, in the moment, sometimes make things very significant. Like at that moment, all I could see was I need to graduate out of IIT somehow. Like no matter how difficult it feels, I just need to find a path out. For some people, finding a path out didn't mean graduating out. It meant like, let me just end this misery now. When we don't think outside of ourselves all the time, meaning that spotlight effect, like it's all about me. There are other people that are going through the same set of challenges. It, it opens up the mind space to notice what's happening around and then to be there for that, that moment of despair when someone else is hitting rock bottom to be there for them. And in doing that, you actually end up helping yourself. And I can't emphasize that enough. Like seeing that happen meant that gave me so much to see someone else or help someone else recover. Because then I realized, oh, like, this is not as significant as I'm making it. And I'm not that important or special. It's fine. Things are difficult, but we can work through them. So that is to close out my IIT story. Just to add a point, I think, Sushma, because you touched on something very important. You know, the mental health issue, and especially what our young people are going through. I hope whether it's the IITs and institutions here and around the world, we have the mental health resources and also there is no shame in reaching out. I mean, when you can reach out for a physical trainer, your personal trainer, for whatever else it is, what is wrong in working your brain muscles and your mental health, etc.? But I think what you're pointing out, and I hope those things have changed, it should not take someone taking such an extreme step to give you a dose of reality that things can be bad. But I think you point out something very important because we really are in a mental health crisis in this country, maybe I think across the world, especially after COVID. So that's pretty intense. And I hope your friend things worked out for her and I hope she went on to have a good and healthy career. That was also probably another defining moment watching someone do something extreme Sushma, so you had at least some very, very important defining moments and you showed resiliency through that. So then what happened after you graduated? Let's just say you survived (laughs) IIT. I decided when I was in undergrad that I wanted to go to grad school right away. I didn't feel quite ready to enter the workplace. And thankfully, my parents didn't question it. I followed the masters then, maybe my options were to pursue grad school in India or to pursue grad school abroad. My sister had then gone to London, I think, to pursue grad school. I looked at US primarily because she went to UK and then moved moved to the US and she was in the US then. So I ended up finding 
a great school. It's USC in, in Los Angeles and started my chemical engineering grad school journey there. Wow. So straight from Mumbai to LA, basically. Yes, exactly. That's a big journey, even though LA can be a pretty cool place, nice weather, etc. That must have been a very different environment than IIT, right? Yes, very different. One big city to another, I think, to simplify. Yes. Yes. Uh, but living alone in a new country and getting used to it, I think being independent for the first time, mm-hmm. for those of you that have done this, setting up your SSN and your phone line and all of the banking yourself, all of that was a whole set of new experiences. Uh, but LA was also quite interesting. I called, we had to be escorted into the campus and outside of the campus because USC is located in downtown with yep. high crime rates. So that was had a whole like another entertainment component to it. So I couldn't just think about education. I had to think about factors that would enable me to have a good education, like, oh, safety is important. And mm-hmm. I have network to make sure that I maintain my own safety. Well, that's great. So then you went through that and obviously you had many very interesting professional experiences. You've gone from, you worked for City of San Francisco, then you went to Accenture, and obviously now to Google Payments. Also, you're spending a lot of time in the state environment was that part of the plan or you just said, hey, let me take what the opportunities come my way? Sanjay, everything is part of the plan. I had it all written out and I followed it to the sea. I'm joking. Like nothing is part from that. I don't play video games, but it's probably worth using a video game analogy. You must play a level to then unlock a whole other set of possibilities. I think my career has been like that, where I've taken a step in front of me and then that has then opened up a set of possibilities. And every step I unlocked, I only had an inkling of energy or directional sense of where I wanted to go. And then the opportunity also showed up and met me halfway. That's a very good point. Take the step, opportunities open up, and then you grab them. Shushma, it seems like environment is a big part of who you are. Where did that come from? Sometimes the smog in Mumbai, or I'm just joking, well, there's sometimes smog in Mumbai, in Delhi, et cetera, and like a lot of other cities, so not trying to criticize Mumbai, but where did the whole environment passion come from? So for whatever thought, I had asthma when I grew up as a young kid, and I got over it. Then, through my education, didn't at all make the connection that asthma can be caused by the chemicals around us. Like if you talk about smog, for example, does cause asthma. My grad school, when I was looking for opportunities to contribute as a, a young engineer, I found that there was a whole movement in Southern California focused on air quality. And I didn't know enough about it. I was in- intrigued. So I pursued that intrigue and read about it and applied to a bunch of roles that would allow me to work in that space just to learn more. I was interested more in that arena than I was in working for like an oil and gas company doing process engineering type of work. So if you think about this as an engineer, I was told that my possibilities were confined to being in that, being a process engineer, essentially. But when I saw this new possibility that was very intriguing, I essentially took a chance and attempted to 
build my skills there. And this is where, because I was ready, the opportunity showed up and met me halfway. I started off as an air quality engineer. I learned a lot about how chemicals can get dispersed in air from smokestacks and cars and all of the things we do. And really figured out what is the health impact from the stuff that is around us in the air. And I would say like that opened up a whole world of possibilities and passion for me, where I, you call not even today, I make contributions to the environmental protection and sustainability space because there is so much that we as a society need to still do. And every single person, every single one of us can and should be making an impact. Well, that's very important, especially we're reading about all the warm climate and the impact of all those things that are happening. So I'm really glad that you're really trying to put a lot of effort in, at the forefront of it. One interesting thing I read, just as an aside, you were involved in something about the nail polish in salons. And the reason I say this is, and I can talk about India, and I'm sure that it's all over Asia, there is no check on some of these things in you know, there are literally tens and tens of thousands of these, because what I was reading is like toluene and all these things are cancer causing. I don't see that. So I, I really am very impressed. And for people who are listening and wondering what I'm talking about, if you go to Shushma's LinkedIn profile, you'll find a little bit more about this is where California has come down hard on these salons using this. I think it's this trifecta of chemicals, etc. The reason I say it is my dad was in that business. And I ran as far as I, as I could from that because he used to manufacture toluene and other things. But that, I think, is a very, very important thing that you are doing. Now, tell me, we've asked a lot of our guests, has there been a role of mentors in your life? Have there been any mentors who have helped you informally, formally, whatever, along this journey? I've had formal mentors in my journey. And I'd say that the more influential people in my life were not those folks that I had formerly given a mentorship role to. So I'm going to give you a very specific example. These are people that, through the way they were showing up in the world, they taught me some very valuable lessons. We spoke about my mom earlier. I think it's worth calling her out first. From my mom, I've learned this bias for action. She's a master of creating work and just keeping moving, keeping on moving. I've inherited a part of that, genetically or not, or just from watching her by osmosis, that I look for things to do, to improve, to fix, and I just I'll keep going. The second thing is I had an early boss who now who then became a mentor slash friend. I learned from her true empathy that it's always about the person in front of you. And it's not about you. I was talking earlier about Sometimes we make ourselves too significant and too big. And when we can just shift that mind frame that it's about someone else, it's just very liberating. And it brings over joy to connect at that level. So I've, I've learned from watching her do this time and time again to then really embracing the concept of empathy. And then I have to mention my husband. I met him in grad school. His name is Ajay. From him, I've learned what I call generosity of spirit. He's such a generous human being. And he truly gets joy from giving. And this is an aspect of receiving from giving that is very unique. For those of us that have grown up in India, there can be a sense of competitiveness or scarcity. It's a scarcity principle. It takes an enormous amount of self-work and mindset shift to realize that 
no, there is actually abundance around us. And it's not a zero sum. If someone else wins, it doesn't mean I cannot also win. And I think this combination of these three different skills, like having a bias for action, starting on my own path, understanding empathy, and also being generous, like all these three things have really shaped how I think and how I show up. Well, that's fantastic. So more informal mentors will help you in many different shapes and forms, including your husband. And as you rightly said, the scarcity of spirit, 1.4 billion people fighting for resources, unfortunately, does that to you at times. Now, obviously, this show is heard by a lot of people who want to be in your role, etc. So if some of these folks say, hey, I want to be mentored by Sushma, can we send someone like that your way for you to at least consider? Yes, absolutely. I'm happy to. I'm sure listeners are listening, and I hope they take her up on this. Sushma, you work now, obviously educated in India. You worked here. How do you balance the Indian and the American part of you? Because, you know, there's both. I see something in the paintings behind you also a little bit. So how does that kind of play out? Interesting you call the paintings out. I do art therapy, so this is all my artwork. Very nice. That's another great way to be resilient, is find some way to cultivate self-care, your own version of self-care. And it might look like art, it might look like dancing, it might look like poetry. It's something that's not related exclusively to climbing the corporate ladder, which we can sometimes find hard to break out of that mindset. So I think your question about how do you balance the Indian and American side, I'm interpreting that question as how do you show up as a a global citizen, essentially. Mm -hmm. Because there are so many parts of me that are not purely Indian or purely American. They're just acquired from different cultures and people. Middle East, Kuwait. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So the way I think about this is that I have more tools in my toolkit. And depending on the situation, I pull out a tool in my toolkit. So it might be that I'll give you a very practical example. I'm going into a difficult meeting. Sometimes what might work in that difficult for me to prepare my mindset is pranayam. It's meditative breathing, that can be really helpful. Some of the situations, it's power posing. Is that American? Possibly. So it's just identifying that we don't have to choose. We don't have to choose to be one or the other. We can choose to be all of it. Because in the moment, whatever is the most helpful mechanism, means, approach will show up. And just trust yourself that it will show up. So it's like a Swiss army knife that you have. You can pull out whatever works. That's exactly right. It can only... I think this is worth saying that it can only work if you let it. We can be extremely self-critical of ourselves. I can speak to this for myself. I have a huge board of directors in my head that is always being critical of like, oh, what, this didn't land correctly, or like, I should have worn something different, I should have said something differently. All the shoulds, my board of directors are constantly bombarding my head with all the shoulds. If I can just acknowledge that they're there, thank you, you've done your job, now just be silent, then I can allow my natural way of being to show up and the tools that are most helpful will then come up. And it means that when situations happen that don't quite work according to plan, I have a choice to indulge the board of directors and beat myself up and be judgmental, or I can give myself grace and be kind. I don't say that I do this successfully all the time, but I'm I'm a work in progress. And I try to have my own back. So that would be my advice to whoever wants this or needs to hear this is 
you are your true friend first. And the world cannot embrace you as you are if you do not embrace yourself as you are. So be kind to yourself. I think that's a big message. Sushma, for our listeners, just, you know, you're currently at Google handling payments as if people have been to India, they'll know that Google payments are doing well. Just tell us very briefly, what do you do there? What's the role there? My role is a strategy and operations role for the global Google payments team, partnerships team. So typically I'll be thinking about how do you, which markets do we launch in? How do you grow in those markets? What is the user research like? What specific alliances or partnerships will help drive the growth of payments? There's a component of financial inclusion because there are many people in the world that are not banked fully. They're either underbanked or unbanked entirely. So how do you create mechanisms for them to be a part of the digital society through this sort of mobile payments revolution? A very important mission because I can see now so many people, especially in India, who would never have been digitized or been in banking that across the board are using that. So I think that's very, very helpful. So congratulations on that. You've done a lot and you've been through a lot and you still have a lot to do. So where do you see the journey going from here? I mean, I, there's still many, many chapters to be written. What do you see as some of the next chapters? So I have many different things that I like to pursue. I see myself being in the strategy and operations space and it might be for a different industry. It might be for a different company. It might be a company that I launch and create. So I see myself growing in that space. And I see myself doing more art. I see myself raising my two little boys. I see myself being a leader in the environmental space and contributing to society to make it what we would like it to be, for what I'd like it to be for my kids. They're all of these components make my life full. And it's not, I'm going to pursue all of them, all at once. Power to you. Why not? Painting, organization, maybe a startup, advocacy for your mom, maybe the environment. I think the future is your oyster. Sushma, just you look back at the Sushma who was just maybe graduating from IIT. What would you tell her looking back? I'd say you got this. You got this. Okay. So have faith, have confidence that this is something that you have it in you. And I find that there's so many young people that I speak to now that are experiencing the same set of fears I have when I was graduating. The expectation that I would have a completely clear plan of how I'm going to be successful in my professional life. I think it's a little bit unrealistic. No one really knew going in to their early years, their professional life, what they're going to be doing and how that was going to end up working out. I'd say be curious, take that baby step. There is no such thing as failure because whatever the experience is that you will have will only help you grow. And it's okay to change your mind. It's okay to not know because once you take that step, like I said, the next level will get unlocked for you. You have some trust and faith in the universe that the next set of possibilities will show up. Just keep moving. Just keep swimming, as Dory would say. <laughs> That's true. Those are fantastic points. Sushma, we always, towards the conclusion of this, we have these lightning round of questions, short questions. We ask everybody that. So tell us, what is your definition of Indianness? Everybody has their own. The first word that comes is jugad. For those of you that don't know the word jugad, it's like you basically make things work, whatever it takes. and 
use the skill, your imagination, and just find a solution. That's what Indian business is to me. That has been used uh, by several of our guests before. So oh, that's very, very interesting. Shishma, how about one person, whether in India or in the US, not related to you and alive, that inspires you? Indra Noe. She spoke about the concept of what makes a leader a leader, and that is followership. Followership is what makes a leader. And I just love that concept. So Indra Noe, very good choice. Sushma, this has been great. Really enjoyed the conversation. Very inspirational. And you still have many, many journeys to go. We'll probably be talking to you much more often. So thank you so much for being on the Indianness podcast. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for listening to the Indianness podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future inspirational stories.